Especially of an animal in a wild state after escape from captivity or domestication. Alcatraz, Arab Spring, one billion rising. Freedom schools, the Maroons, rebellion thriving. We've been rising since the dawn of creation. Sun in the blood of our veins, liberation runs from Muhammad. Welcome to Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I'm your host, Anjali Nathupadia. We begin with a content note or trigger warning. Here at Feral Visions, we go deep, and that often means courageously addressing white supremacist, imperialist, heteropatriarchal, capitalist, settler, colonial violence in order to support healing and transformation. Bypassing isn't an option. The only way is through. The time for denial is over, and today's a great day to keep it real. Amidst the show's focus on unapologetic truth-telling, then, please, practice excellent self and community care while listening. The Zapatistas have consistently reminded us that another world is possible for over a quarter century now. Indeed, one of their most well-known sayings is otro mundo es pasible. But to get to that other world that's possible, we actually have to stop conforming to the mainstream of this world. Now, nonconformity can be life-giving as fuck. In a time when omnicide is normal, our very instinct to survive is actually nonconformist. Having ethics becomes renegade. Caring about our neighbors is countercultural. These are the times that we find ourselves in. Conforming to an oppressive mainstream is probably the most unattractive thing that someone could do if you ask me. Trying to fit into a rotten system when we could be having standards or using our imaginations to create communities based on consent and whatever other principles we hold dear. Justice doesn't have anything to do with towing a party line the last time I checked. Truth is nonpartisan, as a matter of fact. Who would have thought? So with all due respect to invertebrates, we desperately need to be strengthening our spines. What if we spent half the time that we do collectively on our abs, hair, and faces on our backbones instead? Because that's the kind of world that we desperately need. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about being a rebel without a cause, which is a major trope in the settler colonial U.S., Yet, how ridiculous! There are so many life-saving, life-giving, vital causes for us to be supporting. So I'm not talking about some new hairdo or hair color or topical, stylistic shift that's literally only skin deep. 
as you can imagine, I'd like to invite us into a deeper shift instead. What I mean here is in part that nonconformity needs to be contextual or context dependent, as in we've actually got to actively discern because some mainstream norms actually make sense, like stopping at red lights at busy intersections for the sake of public safety. So it's not to sloppily universalize saying, for example, no one is the boss of me, the way that some hyper-individualistic libertarians do. Rather, when it's necessary to diverge for the sake of getting free, more of us need the backbone and courage to be able to do so. Besides, let's be honest, some of us couldn't conform if we wanted to, for goddess knows what reason. Even energetically, we absolutely stick out like sore thumbs. However, internalized colonialism is real. To get it out of us, we've got to shed whatever assimilation we may have previously performed and or inherited in our families or our groups, especially if that form of assimilation isn't supportive rather of us getting free. Frankly, to even have standards makes us nonconformists these days. And here, of course, I mean substantial standards. So not some kind of commercialized co-optation that would delude people into thinking Gucci or first class is having standards. No, I am not talking about that kind of gross elitism or capitalist poisoning of our minds. So to dive in, I have a question for y'all. How do you feel about being perceived as, quote, different, end quote, than the crowd based off of your actions or principles. And if you have some initial sense, please feel free to share in the chat. I'd be super curious to get a sense of, right, what comes up for you right now around that. And especially if it's in a way that may be stigmatizing or othering say for not watching television or for not giving two fucks about popular culture or for giving all of the fucks about climate catastrophe or decolonization, whatever it might be. I ask because it's incredibly important that we be okay with standing out for our values, even when it feels scary, especially when it feels intimidating or when we can anticipate that we'll be retaliated against for our honesty, or that there might be some other form of blowback. Indeed, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said that his followers can readily anticipate this. The life of Jesus clearly demonstrates this too. It's strange, welcome Ellie, good to see ya, but I've noticed some people who were warming up to getting involved in social movements, but you know what? Sometimes they can bring with them some kind of mainstream interest in trying to win a popularity contest. Have any of y'all ever seen this before? So it's almost like these loved ones of ours might presume that if they're doing the right thing, so to speak, that they're gonna get celebrated. 
or that they're gonna get lauded. Um, and some of y'all know from even our right initial right pilot season of Liberation Spring, I consistently bring in some of the work, especially of right the theologian Dr. Uh, Chris Hedges around this in particular, because he names so specifically how that's actually not really historically rooted at all whatsoever, rather more so the opposite, right? And it's not to have some kind of persecution complex, but truth tellers regularly get persecuted, right? So it's not well advised to presume that if we're speaking truth about power, that all of a sudden there's going to be confetti and champagne and people are going to celebrate us. Not necessarily at all whatsoever. I mean, this is right, taking it back to Plato's allegory of the cave, one of the most famous stories in all of right ancient Greek philosophy, right? So what is that again for those of y'all that might not recall? Say we're all in a cave and we're chained to these chairs stuck in the cave, right? And we're looking at the wall in front of us and there are shadows moving and we legit perceive that that's reality, right? Just these illusions right in front of us. And one of you actually is able to get up out of your chair and you actually crawl up out of the cave for the first time in your entire life. So all of a sudden you're out in the world, you literally see sunlight and feel it for the very first time in your life. And it's excruciating, by the way, until you adjust anyways. So then what do you do instead of bailing, like, I'm free, I am so stoked to be out of here, right? You return to your community, right? So within the story, the protagonist goes back into the cave and they say to their community, like, listen, you're not going to believe what I just saw, but like, we're actually in a cave and what we've been looking at our whole lives, like, those are illusions. That's not even the world. And then how do people respond, right? If you've read this allegory, they completely gaslight the protagonist and they're like, we don't know where you've been or what you're talking about, but you're making shit up and you need to stop talking like that, right? So like literally, we have millennia old wisdom from so many of our traditions to give us a heads up that when we're sharing something that's not right, conforming to what folks in our group believe in, we can readily anticipate pushback from a mile away, right? Maybe that's being retaliated against. Perhaps it's being fired. It could be any other consequences of being ethical in an omnicidal world, right? That's probably more likely than us being celebrated. So are we ready for that? If it hasn't happened to y'all already? Getting free is not about trying to win a popularity contest. And this includes vanity metrics and all of the other strange ways that that kind of obsession can show up today. It's a trip because I imagine many of these loved ones of ours know that even our most cherished social movement leaders from days past were super unpopular in the public opinion when they were actually alive and advocating change, right? They were not being lauded at the time. So by most people anyways. So what's up with this mismatch? I actually have another invitation for reflection for y'all around this. Can you recall a time where you took an unpopular stand for what you believed in, right, that you perceived to be just or fair or ethical? 
I'd be curious, right, if you're down to share in the chat, if any memory might be surfacing for y'all. For instance, I can remember literally dozens of times in graduate school when my professors were saying something unjust or making grave omissions where I was the only person who chose to interject. Say in a transnational economies and gender course in my women's studies master's program where a professor literally didn't even know about some pharmaceutical companies still engaged in questionable non-consensual testing in the so-called global south. Or the same professor dogmatically pushing capitalist propaganda without any demonstrated literacy in the universes of anti-capitalist political economy. So here I am looking around and realizing that all of my peers were getting miseducated in dangerous ways. And other folks might not have been consciously aware of what was going on. So being the unapologetic nerd that I am, I was well aware of how voluminous the silences were in areas she was skipping over with her agenda. So I said something lots of things. So for the record, she didn't get to be so disingenuous and counter-revolutionary without some pushback. Or in my poli-sci grad program, filing official complaints with the department chair when some professors were behaving unethically for the sake of what was right. One other person for the record did that too. Shout out to Noriko, she's amazing. But beyond that, of hundreds of right grad students, we don't know of anyone else that actually said a thing around all sorts of legit grievances that were taking place to ensure that there's a paper trail, right? A record of grievances to protect, in this instance, researchers in the future, let alone any hope for an accountability process at all whatsoever. I'll refrain from sharing more of hundreds upon hundreds of examples from my own life. Empowered female voices sharing, I'm that nerd too. I speak up in classes when misinformation is being spread. I've also taken a stand professionally on sexual harassment. You're in magnificent company, the best company. Thank you for sharing this couple of examples. And I can share in those instances, I definitely experienced retaliation. Like in that economics course, Totally got an A minus, probably the only A minus in six years of graduate school I ever got. So, and that is minor compared to the way that some people's careers completely get taken out, right? When they are some of the, like Dr. Cornell West says, right, voices in the wilderness, so to speak, right, that do choose to say a thing. So, right, our records will age well with posterity, right, being on the right side of history. Um, but we can't necessarily say that, right, if other folks might have had a sense that something was up and maybe even been in a place to share a thing but didn't, right? And so, hence the importance of us talking about building, right, this literacy with being able to not comply where that's actually an ethical mandate for us, depending upon what our principles are, right? Um, and especially with the examples that you raise, say, of sexual harassment, this is something that has sort of, right, trended mildly since the Me Too movement, but for those of us that were that guy, right, ask me how I know 
prior to the Me Too movement, and maybe even not in instances where we were being harassed if people knew better than to fuck with us, but we saw it happening openly to other people, right? The retaliation is real. The blowback is substantial. We can anticipate this from a mile away. Oren Shering told to be more, quote, docile, end quote, and eventually fired for raising ethical questions at a tech startup. So many of my favorite people have been fired, and so thank you for raising that also. One of the reasons here why it's so important for me to be, right, initiating this dialogue around nonconformity is because it's absolutely unacceptable how pervasive it is for people that are retaliated against to still be experiencing some disproportionate shame around that that is right rooted in this super oppressive idea that oh to get fired so devastating I'm so ashamed as if we don't have any cultural reference to acknowledge Many of the people I have the deepest respect and admiration for in the world, right, have gotten fired, have been retaliated against, right, have gotten arrested so many times doing actions, things that within an oppressive imaginary might be considered scandalous, right? So again, do we have robust counter ethics in the face of that kind of indoctrination to ensure that we are unwavering in terms of whatever our North Stars are, so to speak, whatever our moral or ethical compass might be, right? And so around that, I'd like to right, invite folks to consider the following. So in your life, like some of the couple of examples that have been shared already, when you've diverged from a crowd to advocate for something, what allowed you to be courageous in that moment? If you're open to reflecting upon this for a bit later, I'd sincerely encourage you to do so. And I encourage right, reflection around those moments to see what was supportive so that hopefully, where it's possible and appropriate, you can amplify those factors in your life moving forward. So for instance, this is something that we talk about in a lot of Liberation Spring classes, where we get into right, really materially creating scaffolding within our lives and within our communities to be able to support us, right, deepening into who we are and who we're committed to being right amidst this absolutely stifling right pressure from the mainstream and let's keep it real in many of our social movements also in subcultural spaces that are not what's up right so in the face of all of that peer pressure to put it generously right how can we have moral clarity right ethical clarity so whether that's knowing, right, life's not a popularity contest, getting free is not a popularity contest. It's not about vanity metrics. Those are trash, right? Having the bravery or the courage to be disliked, right, or preferring being respected to being liked in some kind of shallow or topical way. So actually, on this front, the December 17th, 2020 episode of Citations Needed shared something insightful around this. It's called Democratic Leadership's Predictable Scapegoating of Defund the Police. 
And in this excerpt, the hosts are naming important historical parallels from the period of explicit slavery in the U.S. and how millions of people tried to discourage abolitionist activists and the extension of that movement that continues today. Let's have a listen. And activists are the ones responsible for reactionaryism. And that they themselves are the threats, not the system that they are trying to overthrow. Or to the extent to which the system is a threat, it's a agency-free historical inertia that there's no real parties responsible for. Like, you notice that there's no sort of... The moral condemnation is not reserved for those who have slaves. They're viewed as being trapped in the system. The moral condemnation is for these northern carpetbagger abolitionists. Mm -hmm. And it's very insightful because we see this all the time. We talk about this all the time in the show, that inertia, the current of history, the sort of condition we inherited is viewed as being amoral or morally neutral or without moral agents. Whereas those who wish to change it are viewed as being subversives or being ideologues. Whereas the slaveholder is not really presented as an ideologue or a fanatic or a radical, right? They're just sort of caught in the mix. Mm -hmm. The institution of slavery itself is not presented as radical. Right. And indeed, abolition is the radical position, which is true in a strict sense, but these are terms loaded with normative baggage. and they're. Uh, so if y'all have not listened to this, I know it only came out a couple of days ago. I would strongly encourage you to have a listen to the whole episode. So they spoke quickly and are using some philosophical language that many folks might be unfamiliar with. So let's break it down. So what is oppressive storytelling that's trying to maintain an unjust status quo say? It says, quote, activists are the ones responsible for reactionaryism and that they themselves are the threats, not the systems they're trying to overthrow, end quote. So this is a common form of deflection. Please consider saying it with me, deflection. That's typically called, quote, shooting the messenger, end quote. As an aside, I prefer to say attacking the messenger because now's not an appropriate time in history for people to casually use the metaphor of being shot, if you ask me. So attacking the messenger if they've got a nonconformist message. Have you seen this at play? I see it on a daily basis when folks deploy some shallow ad hominem or character assassination or snarky judgment about someone personally to deflect attention away from their message. Classic distraction or diversionary campaign. Look over here. We've got to be able to notice these things when they happen and not let folks get away with these cheap shots. As in, it's the activist who's rocking the boat that's the problem. Shut them up, then everything will be okay. While completely bypassing the problem that's getting named. Now, if someone was intellectually secure or had a legit argument to make, they'd be way less likely to engage in this kind of move, if ever. Because if you have a point, you can just make a counter-argument. But instead, we see non-conforming activists who are breaking the mold get torn down in this disingenuous way on a regular basis. So Citations Needed continues, saying, quote, or to the extent that the system is a threat, it's an agency-free historical inertia that there's no real parties responsible for. 
like if you notice there's not sort of the moral condemnation's not reserved for those ha who have enslaved peoples enslaved they're viewed as being trapped in the system literally the slave owners the moral condemnation is for those northern carpetbagger abolitionists so this was kind of a bit of a term used in this context, right, just to back it up historically a little bit, to attempt to say, like, you're not even from here. Why are you fighting for abolition, right? Or pretending like people are being opportunist as, again, a way to attack the messenger, as a way to distract from their abolitionist message, right? Um, and citations needed continues. And it's very insightful because we see this all the time, and we talk about this all the time in the show, that inertia the current of history, the condition we inherited is viewed as being amoral or morally neutral without moral agents. Whereas those who wish to change it are viewed as being subversives or being ideologues. Whereas the person who is, right, a slave owner, right, owning humans, isn't really presented as an ideologue or a fanatic or a radical, right? they're just sort of caught in the mix. The institution of slavery isn't presented as radical, and indeed abolition is the radical position, which is true in a strict sense, but these are terms loaded with normative baggage, end quote. So again, I know that was a lot of jargon, but do y'all right notice how relevant this is to the way that we have been unpacking how language related to objectivity right and neutrality gets weaponized in the service of oppression all the time in the settler colonial us that's a little bit of what is at stake here right so i've got a question for y'all beyond our beloved abolitionist movement where do you notice this dynamic playing out today, where oppression masquerades as inevitable, but non-compliance in the name of ethics is judged as, quote, out there, so to speak? So Lee BDS, I hope that BDS means Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, shares, uh, it's still uncommon for white leftists to actually have anti-imperial politics. You can say that again, thank you for naming that, and transgress the liberal conformist tendencies among the white left, 100%. Also, see what you're talking about deeply embedded around Palestine in the BDS movement, right, or boycott, divestment, and sanctions. We call it pep, exactly, yes, right, progressive except Palestine, right, liberal Zionist attitudes embedded in white leftist movements. A thousand percent. This is a phenomenal example. Um, and one of the things, I know Felicia sharing the workplace also, thank you for that, right? Alas, there are so many excellent examples we could get into, which is one of the reasons why it's so important for us to be able to perceive this readily and then shut it down so that we can continue to take our time and our energy and our focus back to be able to be channeling it strategically and intentionally to what is going to get us free, right? Felicia sharing oppression is rampant in the workplace. You can say that again. 
right? So in the context of, right, yeah, employees are not buying into it or the problem. Exactly. For folks that, right, have reasons to push back, like, I'm actually not here to be on a hamster wheel, thanks, slash no thanks. Um, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, what are you doing? How dare you? The horror, right? As opposed to acknowledging, like, this is actually a good faith concern. Could we address it? Because that's actually possible also, right? Um, so around, say, BDS, right, so often, if in some nation-state-centered imaginary, right, folks just presume as a default, like, well, the United Nations told me that Israel is a nation-state, right, then a lot of people actually buy into that, right? And even if they learn, right, the history of Israeli settler colonialism, and even if they begin to understand, like, hang on a minute, fighting for Palestinian liberation is in many ways the same principled stance as fighting for indigenous sovereignty or self-determination on Turtle Island and Hawaii and so many other parts of the world. A lot of people might feel like, ooh, but I don't want to say that because then I might stick out like a sore thumb, especially say if you're a politician, but then APEC is going to be, right, retaliating against me, right, the Israeli settler colonial lobby in D.C., there are going to be consequences, right, for having consistency, right, morally or ethically. And so around that, it's devastating, but this is literally one of those instances where some people will literally, right, just choose to be silent on certain issues in this opportunistic way. And hell yes, Ali Abunima's work is really good on this the, in the electronic intifada. Yeah, we look at a piece of his, right, in our class called Kitchen Counterintelligence um, that's about the Israeli appropriation of hummus and other public Palestinian food as allegedly Israeli food. That's phenomenal. Thank you for that shout out of his work. Uh, and so anecdotally, I could share another example that comes to mind, actually. So I recall once that my brother said to me something to the effect of, you'd let politics get in the way of our relationship. And to give a little bit of background context, acting like his oppressive beliefs are a given, but me caring is what political, right? Have you ever heard something like that before? So again, in this case, right, like maybe, right, supporting Israel, right, being a settler colony, that's just normal. That's just a given. That's just natural. That's just inevitable. But caring about Palestinian liberation, wow, you're like really sticking out like a sore thumb. Like you're pretty out there. That's pretty extreme. You better watch out saying things like that, right? So again, like conforming to an oppressive status quo is neutral, what illogical trash. And yet here he was reading Ayn Rand and studying economics in college in a program that had zero space to think critically about capitalism. So if we pause to see what's going on here, his biases were structurally sanctioned. Do you see how this connects with what I was teaching about gaslighting earlier this season? how at the most basic level, we've got to recognize whose beliefs are getting authorized by the hegemonic society and whose principles run counter to that mainstream dogma. 
I would add a little complication, right, for anyone that might be up for some complexity here. I kind of gestured to it earlier, right, which is if we want to get more specific, we can't only talk in isolation about right, hegemonic mainstream standards, we've also really got to be attuned to what's going on in subcultural spaces, because like we've been getting into also for the history of LS, unfortunately, there are lots of challenges in many of our social movement spaces and subcultural spaces that really need to be challenged also for those of us that are here for collective liberation, right? So one other thing I'd want to share is it's important for us to bring defensiveness into our dialogue. And please let me know if you've ever noticed this before, because millions of our loved ones have been groomed to go to college, study something that'll set them up to make a lot of money, even if it has nothing to do with learning how to think, then they get a career, earn as much as possible, fit in by being a law-abiding, gainfully employed worker bee and capitalist consumer, when their job is unfulfilling, get their kicks through hedonism on the weekends, and if they get the chance to retire, right, maybe they can start to explore purpose, meaning, and giving back at that time. So millions of our loved ones are seriously trying their absolute best to conform to that program. So say you're not here for that, for whatever reason. Maybe you don't do hamster wheels or you're grounded and love yourself so you don't need to buy things for a dopamine pick-me-up. Or perhaps you're a person of faith and materialism isn't a part of your spiritual practice. Or you've been there and deeply understand how toxic, unchallenging, and mediocre that time suck is. So I need you all to know that Folks who have tried to follow the rules their whole lives can be intimidated by folks who are willfully and deliberately diverging. Have you all noticed that before? And it's quite wild, actually, because people, especially in the settler colonial U.S., will incessantly talk about the idea of taking the road less traveled, like you've likely heard in this oft-quoted Robert Frost line, Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. This is super popular, and yet the thing is, so often, if people try to operationalize that in any kind of way, so often it just does end up getting co-opted by the most sort of vapid consumerism, right? Like Pepsi versus Coke, right? Different shallow consumptive decisions and people striving to embody distinction or standing out of a crowd based off of consumer decisions, right? Uh, so... In that sense, are you starting to get the sense that showing up as change agents can actually be one of the greatest invitations to self-actualization imaginable? Not consumerism, retreats, vacation, or navel-gazing, but materially being about it. Who would have thought? Yes, consumerism has profoundly co-opted our collective imagination. Don't conform, wear blue nail polish. What a rebel. So it's disrespectful for our movements and freedom fighters when people's minds can so ceaselessly center folks who are being oppressive. Do you notice that too? 
For example, the counter-revolutionary framing of the question goes a little something like this. I don't want to stray from doing what I'm told by the mainstream because what might my racist uncle think? What a terrible question. Have you ever heard folks that are kind of stuck in that particular headspace? So we can correct it. How about, for example, right, I don't want to write, if I don't stray from the mainstream, rather, what'll billions of BIPOC, right, that I'm betraying think? You see that difference? So unfortunately, though, most people have deeply internalized this unjust empathy deficit or empathy gap, where they're trained to coddle people and systems that are being oppressive and in a way that's directly at the expense of the people who are being harmed. And actually, let me back up a little bit because I know I missed a couple of comments. Um, let's see here. Right, so Lee BDS sharing, I'm so glad you're discussing this. And in my anti-racist praxis, political education teaching, I tell my fellow white European settlers to learn to care less about what white folks think of you. That would be precisely what I'm talking about, right? And more about revolutionary solidarity. Precisely. Uh, and empowered female voices sharing. I've been asking myself that question for forever. I have a thing within me that has trouble tolerating abuse, misinformation, oppressive practices. That's just amazing to hear. Uh, and this is part of why, if you ask me whatever that thing within you is that you're speaking to, the world so desperately needs for us to be nourishing and to be supporting, affirming, cultivating, uplifting, as opposed to stigmatizing, right? Uh, and so that would be one example of so many for us to attend to, right? To be able to ensure that we're creating counter-cultural practices of supporting the kinds of sensibilities that are materially gonna get us free. Right? Let's see here. Remy Kanazi's Normalize This Spoken Word piece. Oh, I don't know that I'm familiar with that. Thank you for that heads up. And many white leftists don't even study indigenous people's history or bother to incorporate that into their political education. 100%. You can say that again. And so then, of course, that's going to further exacerbate that kind of oppressive empathy deficit that we see within the mainstream. And this happens so often, kind of like that example I was sharing, where it's like, Person A, right, does something oppressive or says something problematic. Person B calls it out, and then all of a sudden, so many people in a space, right, if they are a little more colonized to make it plain, might be like, oh my goodness, person B, how dare you say a thing, right? So it's almost, right, amplified in instances where people might be conflict-averse. And so that's also something for us to really be on the lookout for, right? And Felicia sharing... I'm suddenly remembering telling someone that I wanted to be a change agent, and she told me that it sounds too hard. I can be a change agent by just smiling at people. Damn. I'm so sorry to hear that, Felicia. That's horrifying. And there's also such sort of, right, patronizing condescension there, possibly mixed with a little, right, sexism, racism, all sorts of other things that we can name. 
Um, and I'm really grateful that you bring that up because there's another example where, frankly, so many folks have hardly started to scratch the surface of knowing what we're even capable of, right? That's kind of what I was alluding to in playing with the language of self-actualization earlier, right? Like for people who ostensibly say that they're into, right, maximizing their potential, right? The human potential movement, right? Taking seriously their promise or possibilities, right? Here's an invitation for all of that. Let's get free, right? Instead of just coddling for agility saying like oh that sounds challenging now it's all good right because the thing is it's like even using the kind of metaphor right or a simile of muscles if we haven't actually worked a certain muscle set then we're not likely to know what we're capable of right and you can actually only begin to sense into knowing what we're capable of by doing a thing and then by potentially working that muscle right um, and so I'm so very sorry to hear that you had that experience. That's horrifying. Uh, so the thing is, people who are still developing a backbone in this way seem to fail to understand that every time they cater to oppressive dynamics, they are materially demonstrating that they are untrustworthy to oppressed peoples. So much for winning that popularity contest. But again, if in their headspace, they're consistently centering, whether it's white folks, cis men, people in the US, whatever privileged group it might be, then they might not have even realized like, hang on a minute, how am I impacting everyone else, right? And so this is something that we run into quite often, unfortunately, so we change it anyways. And you know what? What's one of the ways that this can kind of show up? Have y'all ever heard people talk about going with the flow? Have you noticed that in a ton of spaces it's talked about in a positive way? What if you're going with the flow off of a cliff? This is one of those pseudo-spiritual cliches that's politically vacuous. As in, if we're committed to collective liberation, that phrase should be an epic red flag. Why? Because what's the flow? How are we going to assume it's good to go with the flow if we don't even know what the flow is? What direction is it going? What a cop-out, right? We could be discerning. How disrespectful to our capacity to discern. So again, this is one of those areas where we can't just smile and nod at popular practices like going with the flow if we care about getting free. Because what are you conforming to? I often see people who are just kind of hoping to blend into the middle, but we have to reflect on the political implications of that. For example, if the pool you're in is increasingly becoming fascistic or even more cruel or unjust in other ways, then we're headed in that direction too if we're just going with the flow. So you see how dangerous that is and how we need to really cut out acting like there's something pseudo-spiritual about that where people use that languaging really sloppily. And actually on that note, why is our treasured tactic of civil disobedience called disobedience? 
Have you noticed that? It's not civil obedience. That wouldn't even really need encouraging in the US now anyways. Like this tagging names, obedience is not patriotism. Now, patriotism is sketchy. I'd never advocate nationalism in the context of nation states that are historically rotten from the outset. But even patriots understand this. So why do so few people demonstrate an awareness of this through their actions? Because we know that actions speak louder than words. The thing is, a lot of our loved ones, frankly, are still trying to get their seat at the table on the Titanic, right? They actually still think that there's something fancy or impressive about that. I argue that this demonstrates a false consciousness, an erroneous understanding of what's going on politically at this moment in history. And it's a dangerous misunderstanding that's super consequential, right? Especially if people get, right, all caught up thinking that, right, there's some association between legality and morality and some of the other trappings that go along with, right, just trying to docilely and obediently, right, secure your seat on the Titanic without even acknowledging we've got lots of other possibilities. Should we choose to, again, diverge from that omnicidal mainstream matrix, right, instead of just trying to adjust to it. And I don't know if any of y'all have heard, actually, the Western Michigan University address that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave around this in particular. I know some of y'all have because we get into it in our Gaslight the System class in Liberation Spring. But I want to read a little bit of an excerpt to see what Dr. King has to say about this. So he shares, I'll share just a little excerpt, quote, There are certain technical words in the vocabulary of every academic discipline which tend to become cliches and stereotypes. Psychologists have a word which is probably used more frequently than any other word in modern psychology. It's the word maladjusted. This word is the ringing cry of the new child psychology. Now, in a sense, all of us must live the well-adjusted life in order to avoid neurotic and schizophrenic personalities. I would challenge him on that languaging. But there are some things in our social system to which I am proud to be maladjusted and to which I suggest that you too ought to be maladjusted. I never intend to adjust myself to the viciousness of mob rule. I never intend to adjust myself to the evils of segregation and the crippling effects of discrimination. I never intend to adjust myself to the tragic inequalities of an economic system which takes necessities from the masses to give luxuries to the poor. Or I'm sorry, that, uh, that's a typo necessities from the masses to give luxuries to the upper class. Oh, upper classes. I just forgot the word upper. I never intend to become adjusted to the madness of militarism and the self-defeating method of physical violence. I call upon you to be maladjusted. Well, you see, it may be that the salvation of the world lies in the hands of the maladjusted. The challenge to you this morning, as I leave you, is to be maladjusted. Portia, if you wanted to come through, I'm happy for you to come through. And if not, no worries in the least. Uh, so I'm wondering, let's see here. 
Hey, poor dog, see you. Hi. Hey. <laughs> Good to have you with us. Did you want to share anything? Um, I just popped in because it popped up live. Um, and I'm just sharing because I hit video and I showed up. So apparently I meant to say hi. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I am so pleasantly surprised. It's so good to see you. <laughs> I'll go back to audio. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Thank you for popping through. Bye. <laughs> what a pleasant surprise. Uh, and so... Around this, right, look at how MLK is inviting us to be maladjusted, saying that that is frankly what, right, the salvation of the world is contingent upon. And actually around that, right, I would want to share another excerpt. And this one is actually just from yesterday. I don't know if any of y'all have been keeping track of this hashtag force the vote movement in the settler colonial US, right? Trying to encourage, so please forgive the settler colonial politics digression, although it is important in the middle of a pandemic, um, forcing a vote on Medicare for all, right? Because, right, Speaker Nancy Pelosi's, right, speakership is going up for a vote. So, right, encouraging so-called progressive Democrats to say, oh, we're not going to vote for you being able to continue being the speaker, right, if you don't, right, ensure that there's a vote on the floor, right, for Medicare for all, right? now in the middle of this pandemic. Um, and so the person advocating this principally, right, is this comedian Jimmy Dore, who's actually, he's abrasive, and yet he's been really on point this year compared to most political commentators in naming some of the hypocrisy of a lot of so-called right progressive politicians in the U.S. And so he had uh, Dr. Cornell West, right, one of our most beloved public intellectuals, right, and philosophers alive today, on his show just yesterday and they were talking about in the context of this particular fight for medicare for all how in the hell to get people in this case elected representatives right to be more comfortable pressuring this issue actually knowing how to perform politics which involves right power right and getting everyday people to exert as much power as is possible right on elected representatives to then see what happens and of course, around that, I want to share quite often what we find is the elected representatives, right, are so sold out, right, and beholden to their corporate interests that then this is in part, right, performative and edifying because the strategy is hopefully when people realize that then we can actually engage in more effective forms of right um political right self-advocacy right and organizing instead of just relying on these politicians so how about we actually just listen to a, a brief little excerpt of some of what dr cornell west had to say right around that non-conformity around that being open to do things that some people might feel uncomfortable about. And I would especially want to remind us that the language of, quote, making people feel uncomfortable, end quote, is 
ridiculously problematic and erroneous because do you remember how right we in part have some limited degree of agency over how we respond like you could invite someone to be ethical and then it's not some universal that they're going to be uncomfortable some people will actually rise to the occasion right some people will actually accept that and up their game right and so it's also i just really want to name it's presumptive, right? It's speculation to say like, oh, if I encourage people to be more ethical or to care about, right, collective liberation, they'll be uncomfortable. Maybe, but are you a fortune teller or you don't actually know that, right? So let's have a listen to see, right? Jimmy Dore asks a question and then let's just see a little bit of how Dr. Cornell West responds. Inside the Democratic Party, that's what she said. and. How do we make people more comfortable with making politicians uncomfortable? Because a lot of people are uncomfortable doing that. What do we do? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. Oh, we know it just by example. It's by example. You know, we're the kind of creatures, we human beings, that we would all rather see sermons than hear sermons, which means that we have to exemplify what we're talking about. You know, we could act like we're so critical all we want in the abstract. But if we don't come through with our bodies, with our energies, with our clout, with our whatever gravitas we have, with our authority, then people know we're just talking. And so, you know, you as an artist, give your all. It's an example. Myself, as a, a writer, I give an example. This is where I, this is, this is I want to go, and this is what I'm willing to put on the line. And, and it's by examples. Now, of course, it's not isolated individuals. That's what movements are all about. When we have a whole wave of folk coming together, lifting their voices. You know, I come from a people, black people. I ask them as what? Lift every voice, not lift every echo. Most of our politicians are echoes. Most of them are tied to big money. Most of them tied to the flow of cash. Most of them concerned about their next election. Most of them concerned about recognition. No, no, no. Those are the echoes. We're talking about voices. Democracies are predicated on voices. That's what jazz is all about. You find your voice. You never heard Charlie Parker tell anybody to find your echo. You never heard Sarah Vaughn say, find your echo. To Dinah Washington, she said, find your voice, girl. So I would just continue playing excerpts of Dr. Cornell West for how many seasons do y'all have? Although I would invite y'all to listen to the rest of us. I just could not resist sharing a little bit. Uh, and to answer your question, Ellie, um, he was being interviewed on the Jimmy Dore show um, just yesterday. And if y'all, right, again, have not been keeping track of this super important example that this comedian, right, Jimmy Dore has been advocating that has caused this like national controversy within the past couple of weeks because this comedian is like, hey, I have an idea. You see how these so-called justice Democrats and so-called progressives aren't doing shit to write pressure hard to allow millions of people to be able to have healthcare in the middle of this pandemic. I've got an idea. Let's start talking about this idea, right? Don't vote for Nancy Pelosi unless she's gonna put Medicare for all to a vote, right? And so Dr. West is one of the folks that has come out in support of this. And I'm gonna say AOC has not been really impressive around this. Of course, they are putting more pressure on her and the squad, the now expanded squad than other folks 
to ensure that they're parrying their theory to practice, right? Um, and so, yeah, if y'all wanna check it out, please do, right? Felicia sharing mic drop, you can say that again. Lee BDS sharing love when Dr. West will say to someone he disagrees with, he starts out, my dear brother, my dear sister, right? And that's also like, y'all hear me say, for example, I say our loved ones so often because that, right, dignity is important, right? Even when people are choosing to be sketchy, for us to acknowledge they've got some limited degree of agency. They don't have to be sketchy, right? And so this is why you won't hear me using language that could be perceived as derogatory, like say, calling people sheep or something like that, right? Because that so often has a negative value judgment attributed to it that doesn't, right, extend that same kind of, right, humanizing dignity that we do see him modeling so wonderfully so i appreciate your bringing out that piece that's it for today's episode of feral visions a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by liberation spring i've been your host anjali nathupadia and i thank you for listening i'm also curious to know what this dialogue evoked for you I invite you to post your reflections and questions in the comments section below to continue our collective journey of unlearning, remembering, and imagining. If you want to share feedback, such as segment ideas or potential guests you'd like to hear on the show, email liberationspring at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow Feral Visions on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can find our show archive. If you'd like more information on this show's topic or to donate to the project, check out liberationspring.com. Thanks to Catherine Petru and Nicole Gervasio of our technical production team and Climbing Poetry for our theme song. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. And in the meantime, let's make our ancestors proud. The power of the people is louder than the evil, deceitful and coward. People in power are power to the people. It's the hour of the peace.